Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 7th, 2008. This week, episode 72 comes to you from beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe. Here with, with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man. Cliff. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Cliff, Mr. Zlotnick, and we've got the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello, Chris. Thank you, sir. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, Mr. Brandon Burton, the technical education manager at Dry Ease. We've got Glenn Feldman with the IE Connections What's News segment, and we've got Carl Grimes with a preview of the main IAQ Council Conference, at which he will be the keynote speaker. Then we'll bring everybody back in for the roundtable and round things up. Keep in mind, the show is also good for IAQ console credits. They're available by emailing me after the show, and I will get you a quiz out. You can email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Let's uh, thank our sponsors here first, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right. To contact the show, you can go to the TalkShoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com website, follow the directions to get a PIN number, or you can just uh, direct connect from the widget we send with the invitations, or from our website, www.iaqradio.com. Of course, we'll take suggestions and answer questions. I gave my email. I want to give Cliff's. It's Cliff Zlotnick. That's Z-L-O-T-N-I-K at unsmoke.com and don't forget to answer those trivia questions on the trivia link at iaqradio.com and collect those prizes last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com send it over to cliff for the microband trivia question thanks joe Sorry to report, we had no successful answer for last week's trivia question, but we did have some activity, and Chris made it a little easier. He gave you uh, a little hint. Chris, the envelope, please. The microband trivia question for Friday, March 7th, 2008, is in deference to our guest today, Brandon Burton, who comes from the water restoration industry. The question is, how many water molecules does it take to make a water drop? How many water molecules does it take to make a water drop? Back to or I guess I'm going to do the introduction. Yeah, let's have you do the introduction to okay, Cliff. Good. You're a good friend with Brandon, and you should have his introduction information there. Um, we have the music. Yay. 
All right, this afternoon we have the water man. As the technical education manager for Drys, Brandon Burton is an approved IECRC instructor in the categories of applied structural drying and water damage restoration. He's invested hundreds of hours instructing water damage restoration professionals in the principles of drying. He is also a published author in the field. He has served as a chapter chair and editor for the IECRC's S500 Standard Committee and is a past member of the ASCR Restoration Council. Brandon has worked with Dry's products since 1995 in the areas of technical service, product development, research, manufacturing, and sales. During his tenure with Dry's, he's participated in several large restoration projects with contractors across the United States. Brandon is an accomplished and awarded speaker with Toastmasters International. Good afternoon, Brandon. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Gentlemen, glad to join you today. Well, what we want to talk about first is remote monitor monitoring. What drove the development of remote monitoring technology, Brandon? Well, you know, remote monitoring is a technology that was driven really by, you know, much like other technologies we have in our industry. It was driven by other industry. And so it answers specifically, I think, to our industry what drove the development. It really has just been liability. You know, if you take a look at uh, the S500, uh, uh, the revision process that we just went through not too long ago, uh, one of the most significant areas, significant areas of shift there in language in the 500 was the need for more and more frequent monitoring. And we're getting to a point where it's almost real, unrealistic uh, for us to be on site and get the amount of information that we really need uh, to properly uh, close the claim, close the file, and, and protect ourselves liability-wise. Brandon, how, how new is this development with the remote monitoring technology? Well, the technology is more than a decade old, to be real honest with you. Okay. And one of the real common misconceptions with remote monitoring is that a lot of folks look at it as though it's it's the, the newest thing on the block and it's new technology and it's probably full of bugs and we need to wait till the technology works the kinks out. But the technology that we're using has been out there for more than a decade. Uh, it's just radio frequency signals and all this other stuff that we've been using in homes and businesses for, for quite some time. However, the application in our industry is very new. And that, that uh, technology was first applied in our industry, true remote monitoring technology, uh, not data logging, was applied in our industry about two, three years ago. I'd say it's about how, how recent that would be. And what other industries has remote monitoring been used in, Brandon? Well, it's used in the manufacture of, of pharmaceuticals. It's used in the monitoring of, of sensitive buildings like museums, for example, where contents are very, very sensitive. Uh, it's also used the same technology, just different data is used you know, across the world for security monitoring purposes uh, and you know, life alert systems and things like this. Uh, it's really the same technology, just communicating a different piece of information. You know, as opposed to humidity or temperature or moisture content, it's reporting whatever information that consumer or stakeholder needs. What What is the difference here between uh, data logging and remote monitoring? Is there a difference? That's an awesome question, and that's probably the biggest misconception that I've had to overcome uh, as I've been talking about this technology over the last couple of years. Data logging is simply capturing information so you have a historical reference uh, that you would be able to go on location and physically take that information and at that point in time look at what happened over the period at which you were logging. That's logging as opposed to remote monitoring. Remote monitoring means that I can look at the information at any time from anywhere and I don't have to stop the process to look at the information. When you're, when you're using a, a logger, typically what you're doing is you're using a device that's capturing information, and as soon as you want to look at it, you've got to stop it. You've got to remove it from the environment. You've got to plug it into a computer, which often means you've got to take it back to the office. You've got to download it, and then you're looking at everything that happened. And, and the, uh, the, the challenge there is that you're realizing all the mistakes you made after the fact without a whole lot of opportunity to do anything about it. Whereas remote monitoring tells you what's happening right now 
and gives you the opportunity to respond. What components actually comprise a remote monitoring system, Brandon? The, the most common remote monitoring systems are going to incorporate a few different components. They're going to have some sort of device that's actually doing the, the measurement or the monitoring. You can call that a sensor or a meter or, or whatever you want to call that. Something that's actually collecting the data on location where you're collecting it. Then you have a hub that is receiving information from all of these sensors that would be throughout the environment. If it were a security system, it'd be receiving signals from a sensor on a window and a sensor on a door, et cetera. Uh, in the case of our industry, uh, this hub is receiving information from hygrometers and thermometers and moisture meters that are placed throughout the environment. That hub collects the information and then we need another component to put that information out onto the Internet, some sort of a modem. Uh, typically, a lot of these remote monitoring systems will have the modem built right into the hub, uh, which eliminates uh, another device. And that information goes out into the web. On the web is your most critical component. That's where the data becomes available. And I can log in and, and take a look at that information from my desk computer. Uh, the nice thing, the really neat thing, is that you have all these wonderful smartphones out there on the market today. Uh, like, for example, I've got a BlackBerry with me right now, and I can actually log in to, in fact, I'm doing it as we're talking, I can log into a project, there it is, in the UK, and I'm watching the data from a job that's occurring in the United Kingdom here from Burlington, Washington, live. Does the data have an English accent? <laughs> it doesn't have an English accent, no, okay. although it is in metric. Okay. Right. <laughs> it is metric, though. <laughs> you, call that, you call that an accent. Well, you mentioned uh, moisture meters. I'm assuming you can also monitor materials then with this same system. Yes, and that's, you know, a very critical component for a number of different reasons and, and something I'd, I'd love the opportunity to talk with you about a little bit later on in the call today if we have a chance around things like grain depression is that our industry has really begun to shift towards psychrometrics, and everything is about psychrometry, and, and track your psychrometry, and everybody's forgetting about moisture content. By far, the most critical thing that we measure is the amount of moisture in these materials over time. I don't care what your psychrometry is doing if the materials are making progress. So a technology like this must include material monitoring. And, and the two systems that are available in the market today that, uh, that are designed for restoration work both monitor moisture content. So, yes, you absolutely can. So I'm trying to picture this. I mean, we're on the radio here, Brandon. I'm trying to monitor the, let's say, the moisture content of uh, some two-by-fours or, you know, some kind of structural material in a, a home that was water damaged. Is this um, going to look similar to a moisture meter I would use on the site, or is it going to be a little different, and how would it be different? Great question. Yeah, very similar in that uh, it's going to be a, a small device. Uh, the actual sensor is a small device, about a third the size of your normal handheld moisture meter. Uh, and this device has a few components to it. It's got, you know, an antenna. It communicates with its hub using radio frequency, so it's wireless. You can imagine uh, the trip hazards we'd leave behind if you had wires running all out throughout the structure. So it's completely wireless. So it's got a small antenna, and then it's got two holes in the top of the sensor that go straight through the sensor and open up into the material below. And these holes are for your, your mounting hardware whatever you're going to use to mount the device. And for simple terms right now, we'll just say it's a wood screw that we're going to use to go through the sensor. And there are two of these openings. Now, the reason there are two is because these screws are the same thing as your pin-type moisture meter. Okay. Now, if you're using like a hammer probe or those small push pins, uh, there's always two pins so you can make contact two points in the material and measure, really what we're measuring there is a resistance, but measure moisture in the material. So you mount the, the sensor where you want to monitor the material, and these two fasteners become your contact probes. In addition to that, the sensor has a thermal hygrometer probe built into the upper body of the housing. So wherever you place it, you're monitoring the moisture of the material you mount it in, you're monitoring the temperature, and you're monitoring the humidity in the air immediately surrounding that material. Okay, now the next question becomes, how does it get its power? The, 
the technology that I'm most familiar with is the one that we market, and it's called the HygroTrack system. And it is powered by, I think it's a 2.5-volt battery. It looks a lot like a AA, but just a little bit larger. And that battery has enough strength that under good conditions, it's going to last you, you know, five to eight years in that sensor. And the reason for that is that these sensors, like I said, they come from other industry, they come from other, other technology. They were actually developed by a, a huge manufacturing company that makes uh, ESIS systems, externally insulated finishing systems. Hmm. And they designed this system for permanent installation in these ESIS systems because they were getting sued for you know, failure of the, of the system. They wanted to prove otherwise. So they built the sensor for a very, very long, continuous life. Is this, equi is this equipment durable? I mean, can it go outside? Can it monitor external conditions? It's durable enough to handle the outdoor atmosphere in terms of temperature and humidity, but you don't want to put them into direct contact with, with liquid water. Okay. Now, obviously, you're not going to put them in before the extraction. You're going to put them in after. Uh, but for outdoor mounting, what I typically do is I'll go underneath the, you know, the eave on a structure or something similar. I've never had a challenge with that. I've, I've set... Know, hundreds of these sensors up and never had a problem there as long as they don't come into contact with running liquid water that will run through the circuitry. They need to design a little umbrella or something like that to <laughs> go over top of it. Well, based on the size, those little drink umbrellas that about do the trick. Right. <laughs> well, I guess the big question always is, how much does this cost? Uh, the technology, if you really set up completely, is going to run you about $3,700. That's going to give you a kit that's going to handle, you know, the average water damage of about 300 to 400 square feet very effectively. Uh, but the technology is also uh, kind of like a platform technology. Once you, once you get yourself a hub that can communicate with these remote sensors, that one hub can handle up to 500 separate sensors. Hmm. And it has a range of up to 500 feet from the hub. I set one up in a building in Hawaii it was a five-story new construction project uh, for a hospital, and all of the floors, walls, assemblies, interior were primarily concrete and a lot of metal, which would normally impede the signal. I was able to get about 200 feet in range in all directions, so a sphere of, a, of, of 150 to 200 plus feet in all directions. In fact, the furthest sensor I'm trying to remember was about 210 feet away. And that's so, for how many sensors would you get with the 3,700? Uh, you're going to have 10. You're going to have 10 sensors? 10 sensors. Wow. For $3,700, you got 10 sensors. You've got the base hub to do the communication with a built-in uh, landline modem. Sounds like you could save that in, I don't know how many trips back and forth to uh, do your <laughs> monitoring, but it wouldn't take very many before you'd save that 3700 bucks, I guess. Interesting. Well, it's, it's the savings there, but you know one of the biggest parts of the savings is, and I mean, just sit back and think about the last time you had to go through a project with a thermal hygrometer and sit in back of a dehumidifier and take a reading and stand outside and take a reading and stand in the unaffected area and take a reading and stand the affected and take a reading and how much time you spend in holding on to that hygrometer. So what your major time savings is, is that even when you do drive out and take your monitoring visit, you're spending a lot less time getting that information. And it's more, much more accurate because they're constantly acclimated. Is remote monitoring anything like a nanny camera? So if I was to invest in the system and use it, am I voluntarily giving my client or an insurance company information which might not be in my best interest? Uh, that's a very interesting question, Cliff. I, I'm of the belief that the more information you have as a professional contractor, the more responsive you're going to be to the environment. There's no such thing as perfection. The crime is when you realize that things aren't operating properly and you do nothing about it. Uh, so, And I think that's the way that our industry operates. So if I've got a remote monitoring system in and I'm aware of the things that aren't occurring as they should, then I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to adjust accordingly. And ultimately, I'm going to prevent a lot more damage. Uh, on average, I'm going to be dry just a little bit sooner. Um, and I'm going to spend a little less time administratively providing that high quality of service. So I don't think that it's like a, a nanny cam, if you will, unless you're a contractor that's not providing good practice. Let's go back to um, the sensors. And uh, Have you had any problems with the registering of uh, false positives? Uh, 
the only time that I pick up a false positive with the sensor is for some of the same reasons you'll get it with your handheld meters. Mm -hmm. If you mount the sensor and the sensor comes into contact with something conductive that is not water, then, yeah, you're going to pick up a false positive there. But the nice thing is is that when you're using you know, a fastener of some sort, if you hit a metal stud or you hit some corner bead in the drywall, you're going to know it. You're going to feel it. Uh, so you're less likely to be falsely led by that information. Are you also monitoring, a, or at least you have a, the option, I guess, of monitoring a little deeper into the material when you're fastening it with, uh, with a screw or with a nail or however you fasten it? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, yeah, when, you, when you take a look at, at how these kits are put together, uh, you, know, you, can, you can literally take a monitoring measurement of 8, 9, 10 inches of depth, depending on what you're using for hardware. Uh, and it's very powerful. Pretty easy to get back and behind and underneath some cabinetry into a wall plate that's buried behind the building assembly. Uh, there's a lot of really neat ways that you can set them up and install them. Kind of hard to hard to visually describe, but there's there's uh, a lot of opportunity just based on how you're fastening the sensor. Yeah. Speaking of visual description, what does the data look like? Do you just get numbers? Do you get you know pie charts? Do you get graphs? Does it talk? You know, what's the data look like? I'll give you a, a good kind of walkthrough here. If I were to be logging into my remote monitoring system and taking a look at, at what's going on with my projects, here's what I would see. I would go first, obviously, to the website. I would put in my secure password, etc., and it would take me to a list of all of my current and past projects. Every time I set the unit up, all of that information is being captured, including the job name that I give it and customer name, etc., so I would see an, an archive there of all of the projects I've ever done and all of the projects that are currently underway. I would then select the, the project that I want to take a closer look at. When I select that project, it's going to give me a list of all of the sensors installed and their most recently reported data. So if it's an old job, I'll get the last set of data on my screen. If it's a current job, I'll just get what is happening right now within the last you know, 60 to 120 seconds. What did the job look like? If I want more information, I just select the sensor. And when I select the sensor, I can, I can input. I want 24 hours of history, 48 hours of history. It actually goes all the way up to about six months of history. Uh, however, if you're drying for six months on a project, you probably have other issues. <laughs> but it has a tremendous, tremendous amount of flexibility for what you're looking at. That data is brought to you in graphical form. So you're taking a look at it. At, as a, as a uh, continuous line uh, chart, if you will, in a graph that, so, that shows you the increase, decrease in current value and your min-max value over time for that particular sensor. I think so it's, could, it's pretty intuitive, and you just drill down to the detail that you want. We've basically. got quite a few other questions on that, but let me, let me get to one or two others, then we've got to move on to a different uh, topic here. We'll run out of time. This has been fascinating. Let's go to this one. Has any of the information you've seen or gathered by this remote monitoring changed your opinions regarding drying? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's amazing. The better the resolution you have, you know, with whatever you're seeing, whatever the medium is, the better the resolution, uh, the more real the picture becomes, and the more it really challenges your assumptions. I can only compare it to, uh, you know, going back several, several decades and, and using a telescope to look at Mars, and we thought about all the water channels that might have been there until we had better resolution and realized it was a very dead planet. Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing with remote monitoring. You make all these assumptions because of low resolution, once a day, spot checks on the data, and no idea what's happening in between. You make a lot of assumptions about what's happening in that drying environment. And as soon as you've got continuous access to the data throughout the entire drying process, uh, the whole world gets turned upside down. And I'll give you one real specific example. One very specific example is the whole monitoring of grain depression. Uh, it really changed uh, my understanding and the understanding by a number of experts in the industry what grain depression really is and how it should really be used once we had some remote monitoring systems on some projects. And uh, like I said, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about that. That's next on the list, yeah, that, but I think Cliff has one more on yeah, this I, subject. Yeah, I had one question, and then we can go into to, to grain depression. But, Brandon, every time a new idea or new concept comes out, 
we have what we call early adopters, people that jump onto this new technology and embrace it and, and so on and so forth. Can you just, just tell uh, Joe and I and, and our listeners you know, a- anything positive you know, from early adopters where this has made a difference in their business or helped them get a yeah, client? Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. I, you know, I've, I've gotten some great uh, feedback from some early adopters that are direct users of the product. I've also gotten some great feedback from those that are consumers of the work that we do uh, that are familiar with the product. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give you some comments I've heard from some restoration contractors. Uh, but we've got one company in, uh, in the northwest area that has uh, 14 systems now and is using those 14 systems for about 80% of the work that they're doing. They initially purchased those systems because they're in a real uh, you know, spread out geographical area, very difficult to hit all their jobs on a daily basis, and they wanted to follow the S-500 and be looking at their jobs daily. They figured this was the only solution for doing so. They really just bought it for logistics. That's the only reason they purchased them originally. And they're finding now that they have a tremendous amount of savings administratively. Uh, they're, they're having far fewer conversations with, their, uh, with the insurance companies that they work with because at the end of the project, they're providing much better representation of the data, uh, and that's really mitigated uh, the amount of conversation that they need to have. Uh, they're also finding that there are far fewer questions from other entities that sometimes challenge the work uh, for, for liability reasons and liability purposes because it's very convincing uh, that this contractor was completely and totally aware of what was happening throughout the entire process and was responding accordingly because of the level of detail uh, that the remote monitoring gave him for report purposes. We're going to so segue. Okay, God, we're going to segue now, and I guess before we talk about grain depression, I'd like to know is is there a difference between manic depression? And grain depression. <laughs> you know, I've, I've commonly thought of that question, and, and you know what I've learned here recently, Cliff, makes me almost think of the same thing. <laughs> okay. Well, what exactly is grain depression? Well, here's the literal. Uh, grain depression is, is a reference to the ability or the work a dehumidifier is doing to remove water from air. And the reason why we call it grain depression is because our industry typically refers to humidity as grains per pound of dry air, a specific measurement, if you will, of moisture in air. So that's where the grain comes from. Depression comes from the fact that grains going into the dehumidifier should be higher than those grains that are leaving. So we should see a depression in the number of grains once the air leaves the dehumidifier. So that's what grain depression is literally. And how do you calc- you know what are the calculation methods for determining the grain depression and, and how accurate are those calculation methods that's where it gets sticky uh, the calculation method is is as follows you've got to use a thermal hygrometer or thermal hygrometer to measure the air that is going into the dehumidifier you've got to use that measurement of temperature and relative humidity and a psychrometric chart or something similar to calculate the grains per pound of that air going in. Then you've got to repeat that whole process for the air that's leaving the dehumidifier. Take a temperature reading of the air leaving, a humidity air uh, reading of the air leaving, calculate your grains, then compare the two. A difference in those two is an indication that water is being removed from the air. Now, the accuracy is what makes this really interesting. So let's think, I'm going to just run through a quick list here for you of all the reasons why accuracy can be called to question. The first reason it can be called the question is because the hygrometers that we use in this industry are about plus or minus 2% relative humidity, plus or minus 1 degree Fahrenheit for their stated specification and accuracy. So my reading can be off by a degree and off by a couple of percent relative humidity on both readings. I'm taking them twice, so you've got to double that inaccuracy. The stated accuracy is in relative humidity, not in the grains per pound that I'm calculating. And for every couple percent relative humidity, you're talking about 10 to 15 grains per pound. So if you add those two together on both ends, you can be off by as much as 30 grains per pound on your calculation. And a common grain depression is only about 10 to 20 grains. The error rate is higher than what I'm trying to measure. And that creates a tremendous amount of challenge in trying to use that measurement to accurately talk about how the dehumidifier is performing. 
is grain depression the most important measurement that a water restoration company should monitor on a job? And, you know, if yes, yes. If not, then what's more important? Uh, I'll say it's not. In fact, of all the measurements we take, it's somewhere in the bottom uh, 20%. Okay. Uh, the most important measurement we take is moisture content, by far. There is nothing more significant than putting pins in materials and saying, is it any drier than it was yesterday? Because I don't care what the forecast is, and that's what psychrometry is. Psychrometry is like the weather guy standing back and giving you the forecast of what's going to happen three days from now. We all know how accurate that is. In reality, I want to stand outside, and if I feel rain, it's raining. If I don't, it's not. And that's what your moisture meters are telling you in the materials. So that's the most important. The second most important is just to monitor the air in the affected area and make sure that you're in control. That's ultimately where you want to be. You want to be in control of that environment. Are your temperatures escalating through the roof? Hopefully not. Uh, are your humidities gradually decreasing? Hopefully. And if your temperature is in check and your humidity is steadily decreasing, then your dehues are working and you've got a good balanced system. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Okay, let's have uh, let's have Attorney Joe pretending here to be Attorney Joe ask you a quick question here. Do wet materials dry when our drying equipment cannot achieve grain depression? I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> take I'm the gonna, Fifth I'm Amendment. Gonna, I'm gonna, play, I'm, gonna I'm, no, I'm gonna take I'll, I'll definitely won't take the fifth on that. I'm gonna play as though we're we're literally fielding that question in a courtroom, and I'm going to ask for clarification. Are you asking me if wet materials will dry when a meter does not show grain depression on the dehumidifier? Because that's the only uh, measurement available for me to evaluate if I do or do not have that grain depression. Yes. Okay. Wet materials can most definitely dry when a meter is not displaying a grain depression on the dehumidifier. Absolutely. Why is that? And that's the challenge with the measurement. Because the measurement could be as many as 30 grains inaccurate. Going back to what and you said earlier, correct? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I could be getting a 10 to 20 grain depression, and my meter saying I'm getting negative 10, which is not possible, by the way. Okay, follow-up question by uh, Attorney Slotnick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it possible for materials to dry without the need of drying equipment? Won't materials dry naturally? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And even as a manufacturer of drying equipment, I'll be the first person to tell you that. Uh, the, the building is going to respond to the natural laws of nature, and it's going to slowly equalize with surrounding environment until it is in equilibrium. Not that that's ever really achieved, but theoretically until it's in equilibrium with that surrounding environment. The only impact that our equipment has is on two things. One, how long that takes. And two, what the equilibrium does to unaffected materials in that time period. You know, this, Brandon, this is, I guess this could be like another legal question, but in our industry, we develop these terms, and sometimes uh, people refer to them as, as made up stuff. And there's this <laughs> term called balanced drying system, okay? And mm -hmm. uh, isn't the term really an oxymoron? Don't we really want an unbalanced drying system where our, equip, our equipment is making a huge difference and putting things out of balance and making yeah, a I, I, Absolutely, Cliff. I thought made-up stuff actually stood for something else. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I, don't, I don't know where that... Right. Go ahead. All right. It, it, what I've commonly heard it referred to by experts outside of our industry is we want a state of imbalance or, or equilibrium of imbalance in order to bring, to bring us back to a point of equilibrium that is in balance with a normal environment. So we want a disequilibrium, is what I commonly heard discussed as a disequilibrium. And that disequilibrium uh, ensures that what is abnormally wet is equalizing with something abnormally dry until we get back to the point where everything is normally wet or normally dry. Well, so you're right, a disequilibrium. 
is, is way, the way I've heard it described. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this one again, Brandon. That, that went over me a little bit. But uh, before we do, first of all, Cliff and I only play attorneys on the radio. That's right. <laughs> we are not real attorneys. And secondly, we're going to go for a moment to a real newspaper man here and uh, go with the IE Connections What's News and Mr. Glenn Fellman, and we'll bring you right back if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. You got a kitten up a tree, well come to me And I'll see it makes it on the front page The mayor's mother broke a toe, they gotta know Stop the press, it's the mass, it's a scandal of the age Hell, it's big news, another shock to rock Big news, hello Glenn Hello Glenn Glenn, are you there? I'm here. Hello, Joe. How are you today? Great, thanks. How are you? Doing good. Good show. Oh, thank you. We really uh, enjoy getting a little more technical today. Yeah, a lot more technical today. <laughs> We're going right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's news, Mr. Feldman? Uh, but for all the people out there in the industry, I know it's going right into their heads. It's, it's good stuff. I've got a couple stories I'm going to talk about that are in our March newspaper uh, that should be reaching people's uh, desks uh, next week, in fact. Um, one of our lead stories is on the American Industrial Hygiene Association officially voicing opposition to a regulation that's been proposed for New York City that would prohibit the use of air monitoring equipment, uh, certain types of air monitoring equipment. This is all coming on the heels of, of uh, you know, 9-11 and, and and regulations right. where they're trying to limit the number of, of people who are detecting things and, and trying to find things and, and, and so forth. But in their uh, attempts to protect public safety, uh, they've eliminated potentially the use of a lot of tools and equipment that an industrial hygienist or a microbial inspector or maybe even a water restorer might use in terms of monitoring equipment. So AIHA came out with a very strong, very uh, articulate position statement Right now, it doesn't look like that regulation is going to go anywhere, but it's something to keep your eyes on. Oh, We've got right. another article coming up in this issue um, about Sharper Image. I think everyone's probably heard the word by now that Sharper Image filed for bankruptcy protection. Uh, we've got more details uh, as far as uh, the impact that the lawsuits related to the Ionic Breeze line, uh, how that impacted their uh, decision to file for bankruptcy and how it's affected their finances. We've got a great article on VOCs from unexpected sources, including outdoor ozone, cleaning products, radon, you name it. It was a wonderful research piece developed by John Miller. And then to round things off, we've got a piece on heavy metal. We're talking about lead, mercury, and schools, and the prevalence of those types of substances still today within our schools, both in, in uh, science classes and painted on the walls when it comes to lead. And then lastly, I just want to mention, we have a letter to the editor in our March edition that's um, something people find interesting. It comes from Tom Kelly, who is the director of EPA's Indoor Air Division. We published a short article last month talking about how EPA was going to be outsourcing some programs and seeking some contractors to bid on it. The way our article read, it described it as something new, and Mr. Kelly wrote to us and said, hey, you know, we've been doing it that way for 20 years, as do most government agencies with limited resources. They contract out services to, to private industry. So uh, we just got a little bit of a correction there from Mr. Kelly, and we want to say to the EPA, sorry if we mischaracterized what they're doing. All right. Well, great. Thanks for bringing us uh, up to date on what's news. Glenn, can you join us for the roundup? I'd be glad to, Joe. Great. Thank you again. Let's get second segment. Oh, before we go to the second segment, let's quickly thank our sponsors. I want to thank Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. I'd like to thank Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And last but not least, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right, let's bring Brandon back in. You got a, another intro clip? Oh, I love it. 
Okay, we've got the water man back on the line here, Brandon. Brandon, I've got a question for you here. I, I just read an article, um, I, I can't remember, BSC Magazine, something like that, where you talked about hat and um, the fact that humidity and air and temperature were very important in drying. And now I've got a question is, um, since temperature is very important in drying, um, what's the deal with the heat drying? Is it full of hot air or is it uh, something that's worth looking at? It's a great question. The, the most important thing to keep in mind when we talk about drying a building is that there, there's more than one, uh, more than one goal in play. I'm not only trying to draw moisture out of these target-effective materials, I'm trying to ensure that I, I prevent damage to any of the surrounding structure at the same time. And for that reason, temperature, temperature can have a couple of influences that we need to be aware of and keep in check. Uh, one of those influences is that obviously very high temperatures can damage a lot of materials that we find commonly in buildings. Anything over about 120 degrees begins to run the risk of damaging certain building materials. So that's, that's the real straightforward and the real obvious thing that we need to be aware of. The second thing that's less commonly understood is that when you increase the amount of energy being placed on a wet material, you you do absolutely get the water in, in literal terms. You get it very excited. You add a tremendous amount of energy to those molecules, and that builds a pressure. And when you build that pressure, the water is going to find ways to escape in, in directions that are not typical uh, when we dry buildings traditionally with dehumidification and low humidity and reasonable temperatures of about 70 to 90 degrees. And what you'll end up causing to occur if you're not careful is that a lot of the moisture will escape into cavities and other interstitial spaces throughout the building that you're not monitoring and that you're not tracking. Now, we've done a, a decent amount of testing on this and picked up a tremendous amount of moisture on a wall assembly, for example, that will escape into the wall cavity and be added to the cooler side of insulation on an exterior assembly, for example, and actually be added to the sheathing on the outside. And this is a material that we're not monitoring. And that's just one example of how that can occur. Uh, so when, when heat is deployed as your primary means for drying, you've really got to change your monitoring game and what you're looking at and, and how you're tracking that moisture. Because the goal isn't just to drive the moisture out of what's wet. It's to remove the moisture from the building. So how are you doing that? And are you certain that you're doing that? And that's a, a much higher level of monitoring, much more detailed monitoring than we typically deploy. Are you an advocate of blending drying technologies together? If so, which technologies work well together and which technologies don't work well together? You know, Cliff, I'm always a component of doing, doing the next great thing because I don't think that we're ever going to achieve drying perfection. So there's always a better way to do it. And that better way typically is uh, finding a way to incorporate uh, more than one technology in your system. Uh, what I, I like to commonly say is that, you know, buildings will dry faster when water is made warmer, air is made drier, and that dry air is moved closer and faster across the target wet surface. And that sentence, that statement, is effective whether you're drying beans or buildings. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and the art in restorative drying is to find a way to take advantage of every component in that sentence. Uh, so if I can find a way to get the material warm and capture the moisture on all sides of the material, but keep my air not hot, but at a reasonable temperature so it's easier to dehumidify, then I've got, you know, the, uh, the epitome of a perfect drying system. And... Uh, you know, you can do that depending on what you're trying to dry. You can use a tremendous amount of heat, for example, in a wall cavity and get the wall cavities very, very hot, but keep the living space, the occupied space, cooler so it's easier to dehumidify and prevent high humidities from damaging uh, unaffected materials in the environment. And that's a blending of technologies. But you don't have to do it with, uh, you know, a, a, a furnace on steroids, so to speak. Now, there's a lot of technology that is in the industry today that isn't taken advantage of nearly as much as it should be uh, that can achieve that goal for you. Things like inter-air drying systems, for example, uh, that take the heat generated by your drying equipment and place it you know, in the cavity or under the hardwood floor or under the cabinets or in the crawl space, for example, 
while we keep the living space at a, at a more reasonable condition. Over time, I guess, water damage, you know, restoration people have learned that low-grain refrigerant dehumidifiers are, are efficient, they're cost-effective, and it, they're both of those things in most structural drying situations. So I guess it was only a matter of time until, you know, someone made a huge, large LGR and put it on a trailer. Can you tell us a little bit more about the one that uh, your company's developed, the EB6000? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we went through a project about two years ago uh, where you may or may not be familiar, but we had a couple of different uh, prototypes that we made available for uh, the industry to kind of take a look at and evaluate. One was called the, the IMD4000. It was a big desiccant dehumidifier, uh, just as an example. And in this project, we challenged ourselves to try to find the most effective way to create a dehumidification system that could handle a larger loss environment. And we did a lot of testing on our flood facilities and what have you and came to the conclusion that we couldn't do, we really couldn't do it any better than with just a large, low-grain refrigerant dehumidifier. And that's, that's what that EnviroBoss 6000 is in a sense. It is a, a very large 700-plus pint a day low-grain refrigerant dehumidifier that gives you the logistic advantages of one large machine for larger losses. Uh, however, uh, we call it the EnviroBoss because it's not just a dehumidifier. What it really is is a five-ton uh, air conditioning system uh, that has been optimized for uh, low-grain refrigerant dehumidification. And it gives you some, some pretty good versatility. It gives you the ability to do what I like to call split-stream dehumidification. In other words, you have two sides to any refrigerant system. You have the side that gets hot and the side that gets cold, right? The side that gets cold in, in an air conditioning system is that side that's inside the building, cooling down the building. The side that gets hot is sitting outside getting rid of the heat. Well, this EnviroBoss unit has both of those components, and you can use them separately. You can use the, the hot side just to heat a crawl space, for example, while you're using the cooler side just to dehumidify the living space. Now I can provide dehumidification and cooling in one location while I'm providing heating in a separate location where the heat can be very advantageous to warming up that plywood subflooring that's hard to dry. Uh, so it gives you a lot of really good control over many environments. And that's why we call it the EnviroBoss. It gives you kind of you know, the control over those environments. Okay. Well, we've got uh, another guest on the line here, Brandon, and what we'd like to do is go to him for a moment. Uh, we've got about a five-minute segment. Then we're going to come back and do what we call the roundup, if that works for you. Absolutely. Okay, great. I'm allergic to your cat. We've got uh, Carl Grimes, a good friend of the show. He's uh, also a vice president of the Indoor Air Quality Association, and uh, he's on the board of directors now with the ANSI-accredited Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. He's also the author of the book, Starting Points for a Healthy Habitat, and we always like to have Carl join us on the show. Today, we wanted to bring him in to talk a little bit about the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council Conference that's coming up. Hello, Carl. Hello, Joe and Cliff, and, and Brandon, too. I, I've got to say hi to Brandon. I haven't seen him in a few years. We worked together on the F-500 revision, and I always enjoyed uh, his expertise, and I was just chomping at the bit here with the being on mute because I had so many questions. It's a good, probably a good thing you had me on mute. I would have <laughs> the whole show. We're hoping you're going to stick around for the roundup and ask a few of those questions, Carl. <laughs> okay. So what are you? Uh... Uh, yeah, the main indoor air quality conference is uh, uh, March 26th in Augusta, Maine. And uh, before I get into a little bit of the detail, uh, the listeners can go to uh, the website, which is uh, miaqc.org. That's for Maine Indoor Air Quality Council.org. 
and download the information and the whole program and all the great presenters. And before I talk about what I'm going to do, they have this is really a stellar uh, group of people. They've got Harriet Birds from MLab, Bill Turner from Turner um, uh, Building Science there in Maine. Jeff May is one of the presenters. Dan Stee out of Santa Fe, he's, and he's a chapter chair for IAQA there. And Michael Hodgson, who is an MD and a master of public health. He's been very involved in, in ASHRAE and uh, CDC and NIOSH. And he was, one of the, he was one of the presenters also in the 2004 the November Symposium that looked at mold from a building type and, and, and use. So this is, this is really, really stellar company that uh, uh, I'm quite honored, to, uh, quite honored to be a part of. I'll tell you, Carl, while you're up there, if you could uh, give Michael Hodgson a little heads up, we'll be, we'll be searching for him soon to try and get him on the show here. We've had uh, Harriet and uh, Jeff May and a few of the others, but, man, I'd love to get him on. Oh, he would be fantastic. Great. Now, wait, I, I just have to quickly give the title of your presentation, your keynote, The Psychology yeah. of IAQ. And then there's a, a subtext here. The, the building didn't call for help. A human did. I, I love that, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been something that uh, I've been saying for 20 years now. And up until about five or six years ago, nobody heard it. And then about five years or so ago, they did hear it. And they looked at me like I was insane. Uh, what do you mean the people? Well, not doctors. Well, not psychiatrists. I don't want to get involved in that. And then uh, they started discussing it and other people bringing it up in, in conversation, standards, writing, uh, forums, and so forth about three, four years ago. And about two years ago was when I first saw it at a couple of conferences where people, uh, contractors and consultants were saying, we need to consider health effects. We need to consider the people and the effect that the buildings have on them, and even if we don't do that, we have to just have a, like a good bedside manner. We have to deal uh, with the people themselves. When you get into a difficult situation, how you talk to them and whether you believe them or not, whether regardless of what you say, if your attitude is that they're just psycho people, not psychometrics like Brandon and you guys are talking about, but psychometrics maybe, if you really believe that it's all psychosomatic, you're not going to really get anywhere with them because they'll pick up on that very quickly. So uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. It, it's how the indoor air quality issues, the indoor environment is more than just measuring and controlling the environment. It's also managing the human element. Well, Carl, as a part of your uh, outline here, you have a couple of uh bullet points and i'm just curious if you can now elaborate on one um one is the the um do's and don'ts for all parties involved what what's some of the main do's and don'ts one of the first ones is well there's i guess there's two at the same time one is one of the do's is Talk to the people that are in the building. Talk to the people that have complaints. For example, just this morning I, I have a call. Uh, there's about 150 employees. There's only about six people that have complaints. But one of the first things that I was that they asked me to do was, will you talk to those employees? Because they're driving us crazy. They say something's going on. The rest of us don't have a problem, but they've been valued employees for 20 years. We know they're not crazy. We don't know how to deal with it. You've got to talk to these people. So that's a number one. Number two is if you go in with the attitude, like I mentioned a moment ago, that it's just uh, psychosomatic, that if, if you go in and you measure for regulatory compliance, particularly in an occupational setting, and if they're in compliance with, with OSHA and any other regulations or requirements, say, on the state or local level, and they meet those, and you say, hey, you meet all the requirements, great. What you don't want to do then is say, 
there is no problem, there's nothing wrong. And that, by definition, because there's a small number of people that are having a problem, that usually means it's not toxic. It's not something that's an immediate danger, which is what the regulations are, are designed for. It's going to be lower-level, longer-term type exposures. It's going to be more some of the more subtle things, and you can't look at it just a regulatory compliance uh, point of view. You've got to get in and talk to the people. And besides, they're going to give you the most, some of your most important clues anyway. Okay. Well, how do, how do you... How can you be both sympathetic and objective? You know, that's a real trick, and I've been asked that for the 20 years that I've been doing this. Uh, as, as you and some of the others know, I started in this not as a consultant or a contractor, but as a victim of the indoor environment combined with some medical issues and so forth. And for me, it was just kind of a... It just kind of natural. I guess the way I would say I do it, and I'll go into more detail... Uh, you know, during my uh, keynote address, and I'm actually going to give several different models uh, and, uh, and, and uh, a couple of case example, uh, case studies on it. Um, I, I guess what I would say is you have to understand that it's real, okay? But at the same time, you don't just accept everything they say as all there is. Uh, part of my job is to find out what do they know and don't know, how do they understand it, help them clarify that position, and then expand on that. And it's during that expansion part that you can bring in other kinds of information so that, you know, the hot topic now is toxic mold and, you know, killer black stachybotrys and so forth. You can have them talk about all that and then add to help them clarify what do you mean by this, what do you mean by that, and then expand on that and bring in the other information to say, well, you know, sometimes stachybotrys doesn't produce toxins, and sometimes people aren't reactive to stachybotrys, but they can be reactive to other molds, or maybe they're reacting to mold and something else in the building. So that's kind of the general outline of how you can be both sympathetic and objective, and I'd even go you know, beyond that object objectivity and say, educate the client so that they have a better understanding of what's happening to them and a better understanding of uh, what the end result's going to be. Great, great. Carl, let's go to the roundup, and we're going to let you come back with the first question for Brandon. Okay. Hang on. Move them out, hit them up, hit them up, move them out, hit them up, roll high. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, cut them out, cut them out. All right, Rawhide. I hope you had my mic down while I was singing over there, Chris. <laughs> All right, Carl. Back to you, and I understand you have a question or two for Brandon. Yeah, I forgot a couple of them. I wanted to make a joke, something about the psychometrics, but I can't remember what the setup for it was. <laughs> I, I, I'm, really, I'm really curious about this term, disequilibrium. I've heard that and uh, similar terms in, 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 you know, in other contexts and something particular interest to me and for what I heard you saying Brandon was that if I can kind of paraphrase or say the opposite of it if you don't have a disequilibrium you've got an equilibrium and if you've got an equilibrium you're not going to dry anything because that means the moisture content and the moisture in the air is the same you're not going to get anywhere so you got to deliberately create that disequilibrium am I understanding that right yeah understanding of course that equilibrium is never really achieved uh, but if you have a, a high humidity because you've got a bunch of wet material and you've got a bunch of wet material at the same time, uh, you're not going to see a whole lot of rapid change. So you have to change that point at which things are at least close to an abnormally high equilibrium. And I don't know that this equilibrium is a technical term you're going to find in some you know, reference book or <laughs> dictionary somewhere, but it's, it's, it's a good term that I've heard used to describe 
what we're trying to accomplish in that drying environment. Okay. Glenn, did you have a question or a well, comment? I, uh, a question. You know, what we've, what we've heard uh, spoken about today um, is on a very high technical level, and for people who are on the fringe of the water restoration industry, there's, there's some concepts that I think may have gone over their heads, and for those who are in the industry, I'm sure that they walked away from this uh, radio show learning a, a heck of a lot. My question is for those uh, like me who are sort of on the fringe who, who may not have gotten it all, where, is, uh, where are some resources that you would recommend that people like me would go to learn more about these subjects? That's a great question. There's, there's a couple that I would, would recommend for you. Uh, obviously, for anybody who has a, a tremendous interest in learning more about the restoration industry, there's really nothing better than going through something like, you know, like our hands-on training program, for example, uh, and uh, the program that's available out of Pittsburgh uh, occasionally throughout the year, Nashville and Burlington. Um, so that, that's one opportunity. We also have a, a, a pretty thorough resource, resource or reference book that we published called The New Guide to Restorative Drying. Uh, it's about 190 pages, color. Uh, it's current with the, the recent update of the S500, and it discusses about 95% uh, of what I discussed today on the show uh, with great detail, and it's, and it's in terminology that it does not assume that somebody is from the industry, which is, uh, I think, uh, what you're asking for there. That's great. Cliff? Uh, Brandon, I'd like to introduce a new term and then ask you your opinion on the term. The term is MIBTY. M-I-B-T-Y. It stands for mine is bigger than yours. And, <laughs> and, and, and what I'd like to know is what your opinion is on MIBTI drying. And what that is, is it's aggressive drying where we bring in this huge, large, expensive, oversized equipment to try to dry a house in 24 hours. What's your opinion on that? Uh, haven't I heard you refer to that as spectacle drying, Cliff? Yeah, or yeah, right, but I like MIBTI better. <laughs> <laughs> or spectacle drying to either well, one. You know, here, here's the, the real honest answer, Cliff. Bigger is not better. And when you're in an industry with, with uh, the kind of the, the mindset that our industry has sometimes, sometimes we think that bigger is better, and it's not. Uh, you know, I've seen many cases where the reason why a building does not respond well is because there's just too much equipment being deployed. Uh, and the, what happens is that a couple of things will occur. One, if you get too much energy inside the structure, you lose control over the way that that moisture is moving through that environment. And it can impede progress as much as it can support it. Uh, the other thing that can occur is that uh, if you have a lot of equipment, but it's not the right equipment, then a lot of equipment doesn't mean you're getting anything accomplished, uh, especially when, you know, I see these losses where people will come into a really cold environment, and they load it up with a bunch of air movers and some dehumidifiers, and they never give it the energy that it needs, uh, and they rely on the energy from the equipment itself. So what really works is the statement I shared earlier in the segment, and that is that you have to make water warm, you've got to make air dry. And you've got to put that dry air in contact with the material and move it across the material quickly. That's what needs to happen, regardless of the hearing. <laughs> you got Cliff's attention with that, Brandon. All right. Hey, I've got actually a question for Glenn. Um, Glenn, I'm curious, had you, are you familiar with this remote monitoring technology that's out? Have you had that on your radar screen? And when's, uh, when's the article coming out and any connections on this? Well, I, when, when is someone from this call going to write it? That's what I want. <laughs> uh, no, I, I have to say it's, you know, it's not something that we've covered in depth, uh, but I am going to talk to Diane Chester, who does a lot of our article recruitment and works with a lot of people, including the good folks at Dryees, and, uh, and see if maybe we can get something out in the next couple months. I'll, I'll volunteer and say I'd love to put something together for you. Well, you, you consider yourself officially approved. All right. Hey, that was easy, wasn't it? Yeah, huh? All right. Well, gentlemen, I would like to just say thank you so much to this week's guests, uh, Brandon Burton, Carl Grimes, and Glenn Fellman. I also want to thank uh, our sponsors, first starting with Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at j-o-n-d-o-n, that's johndon.com. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to my co-host Cliff Slotnick. The so- it's always fun and a pleasure, John. All right. This has been a fun one. The wingman, Chris Boisel. I want to make sure I also say uh, thanks to our technical director who couldn't make it today but promised me he'd be back next week, Dr. Dietrich. Wow. Most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.